This is the Ignition Show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of the Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched on people about things that matter. Matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. We all have our own experiences, but I'm sure you'd agree that we live in a time where there are more distractions and temptations to give us short-term gratification, whether that's easy convenient foods or hit of social media or a quick share of celebrity gossip. But it fails to give us long-term satisfaction. And one of the pillars of this podcast is the paradox that growing to our potential requires purposeful, positive empowerment, but our culture is often suffocating us with negative drama. So today we're going to address this paradox in a conversation with Gary LeBlanc, a man who knows a thing or two about living a purposeful life and the importance of rising above those temptations that give us a quick hit but don't provide long-term happiness. As you're listening to this episode, be sure to notice what resonates with you, what makes you pause and think, and what might spark the desire within you to be more purposeful. Enjoy the conversation. On today's show, we're speaking with Gary LeBlanc. Gary's the CEO of Ikuma, a company that is driven to address one of the biggest paradoxes in business today, that achieving sustainable success requires healthy and happy employees. Yet the pursuit of success and the pace of business is leading more and more employees to be stressed, disengaged, and burned out. Gary's also a man with a mission. After a personal wake-up call that led to a major career shift and plenty of time looking in the mirror at his own motivations, Gary launched himself into a journey of discovery. He's the author of Find Your Superhuman, a passionate advocate for the unique gifts we all have and someone who deeply cares about helping people. With a degree in mechanical engineering and a mind for figuring things out, Gary helps individuals and organizations eliminate the needless noise and instead focus energy on what truly matters, sharing your unique gifts and living your purpose. Gary, welcome to the Ignition Show. Really awesome to be here, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for making the time. I've been so looking forward to this conversation, and I wanted to start with the noise. You said that we live in a distracted world and the noise weakens our energy, which I completely agree with. What do you mean by the noise, and how does it weaken us? Well, noise, if we look at life in terms of different dimensions, so if we look at the emotional dimension, if we look at the mental dimensions, if we look at physical, noise manifests itself in a multitude of ways. If we think about the mental and emotional, oftentimes the noise are these kind of sacred cows we've brought from our childhood that have been carried by our ego over all this time. And it's this mental chatter and it can manifest itself in imposter syndrome. It can manifest itself in envy and jealousy. Um, If we look at physical noise, we could look at our environment as far as our house or our condo and, you know, how cluttered is it? You know, how much input are we giving our senses that's needless distortion so for me noise from an engineering perspective it's the distortion in any signal and when you distort any signal you're diminishing its potential so that's what i want to do in every aspect every dimension of life i want to look at what's diminishing that signal where that noise is coming from and eliminate it i think it was daniel kahneman who actually talked about the psychology behind pushing people towards something versus eliminating the roadblocks for people to find their own way. And I see eliminating the noise as eliminating those obstacles in people's lives to then be able to listen to what's in their soul 
And that soul song is really what's going to guide them when those obstacles are taken away. I love that. I love that. Now you mentioned, you know, some of those um, emotional noise comes a lot from our childhood, you know, things that are ingrained in us very early on. And I understand you're an East coast Canadian kid. And for those mm -hmm. who, who don't know, that tends to come with some stereotypes of a life of maybe simplicity or down home community and a, and a strong family, family environment, whether dysfunctional or not, might be a strong family. Was that you? Is that, does that characterize your upbringing? Yeah. It's, um, it's a good question. Uh, as I age, I'm 47, I am quickly realizing what a gift it was to be from Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, to be from a, a small town. And I think it correlates to what we just talked about. It's, it's kind of like when we grow up, we kind of, everything's about trying to prove yourself. And again, we didn't grow up with much, but we were a middle-class family. Um, and I didn't, you know, relatively on an absolute level as well. Um, I had a lot um, compared to, you know, a lot of people around the world. But, you know, it was still a modest upbringing. So you have all these kind of all this baggage. And I think as I grew older, that baggage, once it was released, I finally saw the intrinsic value of being from Cape Breton, you know, being in nature um, spending time with the family. We do have a very close family. And look, things weren't always perfect, but we've kind of found our way with age. Um, so I consider myself the luckiest guy on earth. I have the most amazing friends in the city, and I have the most amazing family in the country. And that dichotomy really keeps me, um, keeps me balanced. Mm. What were some of the values that you, you look back? Maybe, I don't know how much you thought about this, but what are some of the values that that your family held either overtly or just how it operated that might still influence you today? Um, I have, I have incredible parents. My mother was a palliative care nurse for a lot of her life. My dad, um, he was in engineering and he worked uh, in the oil business for a while. And then, you know, when he retired, he, um, he actually became president of the community um, back in Bellcote, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. So when I look at my parents and I look at the values, one, compassion is a huge value shared by both of my parents. They're both extremely compassionate people. Now, look, childhood, there was some tough love, but when, when push came to shove, when people needed something, my parents were both incredibly, incredibly passionate um, for helping them. Um, so that was one major value. Integrity is another one. My parents, I know this might be cliche. It might have something to do with that generation as well. You know, they didn't grow up in an easy lifestyle. Um, you know, m my dad had to, you know, it, it was the school of hard knocks when they were younger. His father passed away when he was 10. So he had to be very resilient. And, and that really continued throughout his life. And my mother, well, she had to leave home when she was 15. So when you're built from, from that level of adversity, I think integrity, I think it just shapes um, what's truly core to who you are. Um, and then as far as growth, well, that's one that I've, I've kind of developed more in my internal journey. Um, so really, compassion, integrity and growth um, have really become kind of the cornerstones of my values. Mm. Uh, it just uh, makes me think I, um, I just lost my father, he passed away a couple of weeks ago after uh, a loss of cancer. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, we had a celebration of life for him, a service for him um, a couple of weekends ago. 
And in preparing for that, my sister, my mom and I, we're all very close. We had an opportunity to go back through old photos and old family videos growing up in the, for me anyway, growing up in the 70s and 80s. And um, it was just, it brought back a lot of memories, but also really shone the spotlight on uh, on the values that we do pick up from from our parents. And for Mm -hmm. me, it was a lot of very much a a very close family. Health was a big, big value. Uh, learning was a big value. Growth was a big value as well. And we also see that there are sometimes certain events or experiences, even if they're small, mo- uh, short moments, as a child can really shape us. And I understand from you that you had certain experiences growing up, which you often refer to as the trifecta of blessings. <laughs> and I wonder if you could just share uh-huh. kind of what those were and, you know, both maybe your perspective at the time when that was happening and maybe what wisdom you can look back and see it now. Yeah. (laughs) You know, when I think about my childhood, I think I have some, some mental blocks um, in some areas, but my trifecta of blessings. um, Well, one, I I had big ears as a kid. Um, I had them pinned back when I was in my late teens, but um, big ears was one. Um, the other one was I had a very debilitating stutter. So just those two alone are kind of the, it's like I'm hitting the jackpot of things that, that kids tease. And then obviously that comes with um, a fairly big chip on your shoulder and quite a bit of insecurity. So you're kind of carrying all that. And, you know, now I can look back and you can see things. Any adversity is a blessing, right? Any struggle is a blessing. Any struggle produces growth. Um, and it fueled me. It fueled me in my early career um, and in school. You know, I graduated tops of my high school for a guy, did well in university. Um, and in my corporate career, you know, I, I ascended quite quickly. And I believe that was fueled from this insecurity, feeling like I wasn't enough when I was a child. Um, but kind of eventually, when you look at that, you kind of begin to let go. Um, and I would say that that adversity, although it helped me early in my life, um, in my career, now I've kind of let that go. And it's um, become more of a balance and more of an acceptance. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of truth in the, in the fact that... Um, while in the moment, adversity often sucks, but usually with hindsight, pe- people, even the great, most successful people on the planet would say that the adversity is what caused, either caused them to grow or led mm-hmm. them on a new path. And, and um, understanding your career path, you went from working in roles that created and sold some of the world's most popular brands and cookies and alcohol. You went from there to a passion for educating people on the perils of sugar and inflammation. That seems mm-hmm. seems uh, like a case of someone who maybe saw the inner belly of what either what goes really on <laughs> in those mainstream consumer products or the impact those products are having on our society. You know, some people would turn a blind eye to that and just reap the success yeah. and the rewards from that. But you turned it into a calling. What mo- what motivated you to change? That's a great question, Chris. You know, you called it. I was really in the heart of the consumer, the packaged goods world. And, you know, I, although I worked for an alcohol company um, in my last corporate role, it was really working for a food company earlier in my career that kind of highlighted just how, and again, I have to be careful, I don't want to disparage industries, but, you know, just how, I guess, distorted 
the aim was for these companies. And a lot of times, especially with the consolidation, and I won't get into, you know, how how consumer product companies have consolidated, you know, the only way they could make money if they didn't grow was through reducing the value of their product, right? And I grew up in that, you know, I grew up in the heart of that. And to be quite honest, I don't know. I don't know why it bothered me more than the average person. Um, Around 2029, I really started paying a lot of attention to my health. And I guess it was just through osmosis that, that initial luck of just paying attention, and I can't remember the, the moment, but just that luck to kind of kickstart that engine. Then through my just my neurosis and OCD potentially, I just started going full bore into it. And then through osmosis, you know, ignorance is bliss, right? So a bit of information goes a long way. Um, and I guess it was just more incremental at that point. And then it was just an overall malaise in what I was doing and a disenchantment with that industry that just kind of instigated a bit of a change. Mm. And you talk about, you know, the fact that struggle is part of the human experience. You know, I often see that people confuse the issue, either judging themselves for, for struggling or thinking they might must be doing something wrong, or perhaps even worse, there's something wrong with them if they are struggling. What, what have you learned about the struggle, whether it was, mm. you know, maybe those later years of your corporate where you started to get disenfranchised or maybe other phases, but what have you learned about, quote unquote, the struggle? Well, everybody is struggling. So that's what I've learned. Everybody is struggling, regardless of the caricature we put forth in social media. Everybody has a story. And it's because we're all relative to our experience, right? When we're in a steady state, everything is fine. But then any deviation from that steady state is struggle. So everybody's struggling in their own way. On an absolute basis, yes, somebody in Syria is struggling a lot more than somebody in Bel Air, but everybody's struggling internally. In your mind, that's the reality that we have to deal with. That's the environment. So for me, really struggle, I guess it's how you view it. Tension is what we need to grow, you know, and in engineering, again, when you look at tension, tension creates a response, right? So when you have tension, Um, It's something that you have to either deal with or it'll be debilitating. So that tension prompts a a response. So the struggle is needed. What I like to say is I want to be more intentional with my struggle. So I don't want to be reactive. I don't want to be a victim to the struggle. I know that the struggle is making me more self-aware. But what I want to do is I want to be more intentional and understand my environment to create that positive tension. Right. And I call that intention. So I want to take that struggle, which is seen as more um, a victim sort of term, and turn that into, I want to create intention that's going to create the tension in my life to become more aware and to grow. And I think that's how I manage that. But in the end, we're all struggling. I love that play on words. As I just picked up what you were saying there, you want to be intentional about being intention. And uh, by, by feeling that tension, you know you're in it. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you must be doing something right. You know, I, mm-hmm. there was a, a saying I heard from a, a mentor of mine once. You know, we were talking about behavior change, and sometimes you you get annoyed that you're still doing some of those old things, old patterns, or old habits. And what he said was, um, when you see it's not working, you know it's working. Mm-hmm. And what he meant by that is, at least now you're noticing, you're seeing that you're still doing that old silly thing. 
In the past, you didn't realize it was an, it was an old silly thing. You just thought that's the way it goes or that's the way who, how you are. And, um, it, but it can, it can really be hard for, for people. So I love, I love your point there about, you know, either embracing the struggle or recognizing that this is here to serve you in some way. And as I often say, nothing has, any, nothing has meaning except the meaning you give it. And mm-hmm. how you see that adversity or how that struggle can make a world, world of difference. And sometimes Agreed. people learn that early. Sometimes people learn it way too late. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's, it's really about your perspective. You know, Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, he found meaning in the most dire of circumstances. And it really is how you, and again, we talked about negative visualization before, there's always a worse situation. And I know that that's a bit cliche and that's a bit of a mind trick, but life is a mind trick, right? Life is a mind trick. So we have to get away from, well, that's just tricking yourself into thinking a certain way. Well, that's the point. So, so it really is about perspective. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges we see, of course, in our broad cultures today is talking about perspective is the perspective that we often have about how we are doing relative to other people, comparison-itis, right? And uh, especially with, um, with social media and, you know, everyone's taking selfies and all that kind of stuff. And you had, you had written on one of your blog posts uh, some statements for, you know, prompting people to think about how they might compare themselves to others or worrying about what other people think. And I think the statements there were, were so simple, but they were profound. And the, the five that I just made a note of here, you, you talked about, you know, getting people to think, does this ever show up for you? And what you wrote was, I obsessively check social media feeds after posting a selfie. I seek validation even for the smallest mm-hmm. decisions. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I belong in my situation or job. I, mean, I got that imposter syndrome. Or mm-hmm. I wear the latest in fashion, often change my outfit several times before leaving the house. And the one that really, really struck me was the comment any criticism of my character easily shakes me and it's a bit stomach turning on some of those points you know sometimes maybe people think oh yeah that's me that's totally me i experienced that mm-hmm. i find sometimes the insi- more insidious points are you you think on the surface your na- reaction is oh i don't do that but if you really 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 get honest when those things start to show up they can show up silently but they can be killers they can be killers of your confidence and and um, just your own self-esteem, which has a huge knock, knock-on effects. How, are, how, do, how do you see those showing up maybe for yourself or for, for others, mm-hmm. this comparisonitis? And, and what do you do about that? Well, you know, I often hear people say, I don't care what people think. And it's often the people who say that who care the most. Mm-hmm. And I always say, of course, we should care what people think. You know, we don't live in a vacuum. You know, who we are is a function of our relationships in life. So while I care very much what people think, it doesn't diminish the view of my value in the world. It just gives me perspective from somebody else's experience. So personally, this is a, a day in, day out conversation with me because again, you know, I had big years I started when I was a kid. So I got teased a lot and I never felt like I fit in. So my brain's been wired for that. You know, our brains are these neural networks of previous experiences that culminated a a way of thinking. We have all these sub minds that are constantly battling to really reason our present experience. And for me, I do care what people think. And I do notice you brought up the point of being aware, you know, it's all about sensing emotional arisement, you know, emotions arising, sorry, and then reacting, right? So we're always picking these things up. 
So for me, now I'm aware. So I can breathe when I start feeling a certain way. I have self-compassion for the judgments I have of myself. And this awareness allows me to say, you know what? This is just one perspective. I am who I am. I'm very comfortable with that. I'm evolving. I'm growing. And I'm, and I'm okay with hearing these things. And I think that's the, the kind of twist you have to put on it. It's caring what people think simply for getting perspective on your present experience. Yeah, I think that's a great. That's a great perspective. Um, I often some of the clients that I coach who have, you know, admittedly have a challenge with overly stressing, quite literally, about what other people think, and they often they often think that the solution or the antidote to that is to not care what other people think. And if you're hardwired to be be emotionally connected to feedback, that can be a really hard hard. It's a hard muscle to build out of the gate. And so, what I often say is, you're right. It, it's um, it's not about not caring. It's just it might be listening to what other people think, but not letting that um, overly influence you and or mm. overly influence you how you feel about yourself or as you say the value you bring to the world. Yeah. And, and you know we, we both uh, uh, both uh, both have a shared knowledge to know that we are hardwired as human beings to for survival, and mm -hmm. uh, we will do more to avoid pain. And part of getting feedback or listening to the people's perspective, sometimes it's not a positive, you know, it's not positive or it's not immediately um, positioned in, in a way that makes you feel good. One of the little tactics uh, that has worked for me is, I do, uh, like what you said, you know, you can breathe and I can change your brain state, et cetera. Uh, a lot of the workshops I do at the end of the workshops, we get feedback forms on the day. And a colleague of mine said this to me once, and ever since he said it, I, I followed it. And he said, you know, I used to read these feedback forms while I'm still in the room. People are exiting the room. You know, you're kind of wrapping up. You read the feedback forms, and 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 19 out of 20 can be you know 10 gold stars. And there's one person who gives you a six out of 10, and all you can do is think about that six. And so uh, what I do is I I don't look at the feedback forms until a couple of weeks later. And it's remarkable for me, and you know, generally the feedback is very, very positive. And there's a couple of people who might offer some some really valuable feedback, um, and didn't rate it a ten star, ten gold stars. But it's remarkable how when you create separation between the event, the stimulus, and your own response, how much more maybe control you have, or how much more open you are to actually receiving that feedback. Yeah. I agree with you there. Um, you know, it's the same when you're dealing with something very emotional, right? You know, the way to dispel those negative thoughts and to, and to get over the hurt is to walk right into it, right? Mm. But you don't want to walk right into it right away when it's still that fresh. Yes. You know, you kind of want it to go from a 10 on 10 to maybe a seven or a six before you start reflecting, right? So I think it's kind of the same logic with what you just brought up. You know, there's one thing that I would potentially suggest, and I'm not saying, again, I'm not speaking from a pulpit here, and it would be very hard to do, but if you just change the narrative and you said, you know what, I want to find criticism because only with criticism am I going to get better, right? And there's always opportunity to get better. So if your expectation is to get criticism and to seek it out, then when you go into it, you're not going to have that delta of expectation that I want it all to be good. And then you're going to be brought down by this one negative comment. No, I want negative comments, right? And when you position it that way, you know, only getting one, you'll kind of be seeking out more potentially. So 
it's a little bit of a twist. I'm not saying it's easy, but it, it might be a good calibration. I like that. I like that. I really like the thought of the delta of expectations. You know, they often say the most painful gaps we humans experience is the gap between knowing what to do and actually mm-hmm. doing it. And, 100%. Um, and that comes down to expectations as well. Um, so I want to just turn to your, some of the current work that you're doing. You know, your company, Ikuma, uh, means fire in Inuit. And uh, for those, again, who those aren't familiar, what do you know more? Can you tell us more about the, the basis of that, of the word, what it meant to the Inuits or, or why that inspired you to name your company in Ikuma? Yeah, that was really early on. And it was me and my partner, Brian. We were, we were kind of brainstorming what we want the company to be about. And this was born again from my friend passing away from lymphoma. And I was just writing a book kind of casually for my friends because I had been immersed in this kind of world of holistic well-being for the past four or five years at the time. And we sat down and we had a creative session and we were talking about rejuvenation. You know, we were talking about, um, you know, how to help people get more in tune with a more healthy lifestyle. And then we started to really you know, look at, okay, well, you know, fire, you know, fire is all about rejuvenation. Fire, you know, informally is an urge to take action, right? And the Inuit have such a strong reverence for nature. And my business partner was meditating in the woods, actually. Um, he's a very, he's a very devout meditator and big on mindfulness. And that kind of became a big part of it. You know, so we wanted to marry environment, sustainability, um, really a strong connection with nature, being all universally one. And the Inuit language, Inuktitut, really, really brought that home. So to be quite honest, uh, I thought it was just a perfect evolution of exactly um, what we wanted to stand for, um, linked to a language and a culture that has a very strong connection to the world and to nature. I love that. I love that you talk about evolution, and I know your company talks around a lot about the evolution of vitality. Mm-hmm. I think for too many people, we still operate, and I think our message is at large. It's it's frustrating. Our message is at large in the media and TV shows are just um, still operate on the on the belief that health is really the absence of disease and illness versus what true vitality and aliveness and and energy. How do you, what's your, how would you define the evolution of vitality and why is that your purpose? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I've, I've evolved. (laughs) I've had different iterations of vanity um, and what health meant to me. You know, right now, the best way I describe it is I want to be functional into my later years and functional on multiple levels, physically functional, you know, mentally functional, emotionally functional. And the best analogies are, are your muscles, right? If I want to be functional physically, I want to be free from injury as much as possible. I want to be free of disease. So whereas when I was younger, I might have had a lot more um, weight that I was carrying muscle-wise, that was mainly driven by vanity. But then when I started thinking about, okay, functionally, what's the perfect, what's the perfect vehicle that will keep me healthy and free of injury going into my later years? And that kind of calibrated me to, okay, what do I really need to live that life? 
And if you apply that same logic to mentally and emotionally, then it kind of helps you calibrate, okay, well, in the end, everything's about mental health. So if I look at how am I going to create the most healthy, vital environment in my mind, then it helps you really look at everything in your life. And you look at your friends, you look at your family, you look at your partner, you look at, I break it into 12 life priorities. And you look at what serves you and what doesn't serve you from a functional perspective, and then what you want to do more of. So I know this is a bit, maybe a bit geeky, but you know, I've created the Find Your Superhuman Blueprint exactly for that, to be able to objectively map all this out to get to a more functional and vital place. Because again, you can be physically in great shape, but if your mental environment is a disaster, then you're not going to live a healthy life. So that's kind of how I break it down. So, that's great. And um, just for, for clarity, what do you mean when you say from a functional perspective? Yeah, so functional means for me, it means how am I going to create the optimal environment for me to be able to grow and do what I want to do um, to be a better person, to serve others, to be compassionate, and to be essentially maintaining that ability well into my later years. And again, functional is about having just enough resilience, but not um, building bridges that you don't need to cross. So for example, say I'm, and this is going to get a bit, you know, um, objective, but say I'm 200 pounds, right? And that serves me functionally for injury. Whereas when I was 225 pounds, let's say, I was carrying more muscle. So you would say, well, that would be better, right? That would be healthier. But no, that was an extra 25 pounds that I didn't need to be carrying. It was still a load because that extra 25 pounds wasn't functionally helping me be at my best. Mm. So that's the best analogy. And I think you can, you can apply that to mental, emotional, and spiritual as well. You know, there's, there's a point where every good behavior can be overflexed. Yes, and you got to find out where that where that perfect um, where that perfect spot is, and that's why it really has to be a deliberate process. And again, I have this seven step kind of product that I take myself through that helps me calibrate that because it's not an easy conversation. So on that point, if someone was interested in you know, listening to this conversation and said, "Okay, I'll, maybe I'll check out you know Gary's seven steps and his twelve categories," but just for, for maybe give them a a little taster, where would mm-hmm. someone begin? If they're, let's just say they're at a situation sure. where maybe they're, you know, in their thirties, forties, fifties, somewhere in there. And they're, they're, they're someone who's interested in self growth and maybe they're feeling a little disconnected from, from, or being not fully in alignment with what either fuels them or fulfills them in some way, mm-hmm. where would they begin? What might be a, an easy access point for them? Yeah. To, to look in the mirror in a way that might be comfortable, maybe insightful and get them, get them going down a different path. Yeah. Okay. So I would start um, by simply doing a, a positive and negative brainstorming exercise. So I would just, you know, white page, no constraints, um, what you feel is serving you and what you feel doesn't serve you. No categories, just an open page. And if anybody's seen Mary Kondo's special, on Netflix, I read her book a few years back, but it's kind of that feeling when you grab something or think of something, what, what's that initial gut reaction to it, right? And it's a lot easier to start off with what you don't want in life, what's not serving you, 
um, than oftentimes what you do want in life. You know, that's often a hard question. So you start off with this brainstorming exercise and you just get all your thoughts out. And then you would go into, okay, how can I categorize these? And you would look at these 12 life priorities and you would start to place, okay, um, in friends, this is what serves me. This is what doesn't serve me. This is what I intuitively think I want more of. And you do this across all these categories. So initially, just a brain dump because there's a lot top of mind, and then you want to categorize it. Hmm. I, I, I like the simplicity of that. You know, often I often talk about the power of of asking high quality questions, and um, you know, we often ask ourselves we're asking ourselves questions all the time. Sometimes we don't ask ourselves very empowering questions. You know, like why am I such an idiot? That's a that's a mm-hmm. question that might not be most empowering. But asking high quality questions can often elevate your mind out of um, out of whatever rut you might be in. And I love that simple question of what is not serving me? Mm-hmm. And I agree that sometimes starting with the, the stuff that isn't so great is usually an easier one because usually there's greater pain sure. point there. Exactly. Um, and speaking about high, a high quality question, you know, you talk, you know, you, you're, you kind of stand for, uh, for purpose and, there's a lot of talk in our modern times about following your passions or finding your purpose. And it's a message mm-hmm. that often definitely circulates in, in personal development now more and more so in entrepreneurship. And I think even more so for the millennial generation about deciding about what, what life direction to go. And yet for many people, it's something it's exciting to tackle for others. It could be overwhelming or scary and some just don't know where to begin. Um, so leading into questions, where did you, where did you start in your journey of finding your purpose? What kind mm-hmm. of questions were you asking yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. It is a bastardized term these days. Um, I like, you know, I like to focus on meaning, what gives you meaning. And then that kind of creates potentially multiple purposes in life, right? But the inherent meaning in life, what gives you meaning, um, should stay fairly, fairly consistent, right? And it's always being shaped. For me, what gave me meaning in life or where I found my purpose was really, and again, a lot of people have to go through catastrophes to find this, not always. Um, I find when you're intentional, you can potentially get to where you want to go quicker um, but oftentimes it takes a catastrophe for us to, to really wake up. So for me, it was catastrophe that really chiseled away all of that ego and helped me realize what really drove me. And for me, the purpose was always kind of sitting there um, throughout my life for, for some reason. Again, I don't consider myself more altruistic than the next, but there was a certain, call it Catholic guilt, call it whatever you want, when anybody I cared about would be in distress or would have been dealt a bad hand, that would always drive me to action. Um, Be it my friend who was passing from cancer, be it my aunt who had cancer, be it my cousin who's blind. It was something that I would run towards, right? And uh, again, uh, I just want to be clear. I don't consider myself overly altruistic versus the average person. Uh, you know, I, I don't consider myself special that way, but there was a reason why I was running to the fire 
when these people were going through these things. And I think, and I finally kind of realized, I think it was because when I was a kid and going through all that adversity, I wish I had somebody there for me. Hmm. And it was an interesting realization because I know for a fact that that left us a mark, you know, that left a strong mark in my psyche. And I think that's what drove me. You know, when my friend went through that catastrophe, it finally chipped away the rest of that, you know, block I had on my shoulder um, to get to really what drove me. And service to others became a huge part of what gave me meaning. And then, you know, once you find what gives you meaning, well, then there's a lot of different purposes you could have in your life. And at the time, health became a big focus for me because a lot of people around me weren't doing well. So that attracted me. So that meaning fueled my purpose in that phase of life. I don't know what's going to be my next purpose. I think Ikuma, um, you know, it's all encompassing. I, I could probably do this for the next 50 years, um, but who knows? But I know what gives me meaning. How do you define success now at the stage and age and experiences you've had in life? You know, success for me would be to continue to grow in the values that I profess to have. So, you know, growth is an important value of mine. Integrity is an important value of mine. Service to others is an important value of mine. So for me, success has nothing to do with material and monetary. You know, those are potentially a metric to get you to the life you want to live and to have the freedom to be able to live your values. So for me, what success is, is I use growth in those areas and evolution as my metric. And it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, I just had this realization again just a few weeks ago. I've been bemoaning the struggle for years. You know, I started Kuma six years ago and we've had, we've had a journey, I'll tell you. We've had ups, we've had downs, and it's been a struggle. You know, there's been a lot of tension. And it was just really recently that I kind of realized that you know, I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss that because every day that goes by is kind of my Guinness world record of the longest period I've struggled, mm. you know, in life. And for me, when I look kind of going forward, you know, that's really how I'm going to define success. How many situations that I put myself in tension, hopefully intentionally, right? Um, where I can grow and evolve in those areas. So that's really what success would be for me. I think that's, that's uh, very profound, very simple. And uh, obviously you're a guy who uh, has done a lot of introspection and reflection and to have the level of clarity that you have is inspiring. And so thanks for, sh thanks for sharing that. I want to come back to what you talked about a few moments ago about how you used to run to the fire and you wish you had someone there for me and I think also for someone who's listening to this and, and maybe starting to think about, you know, they would like to have greater clarity or be able to articulate what is their purpose. And some people just don't even know where to begin with that. And they feel like it's something outside of them or it's something they have to go and pursue. But I think like as Steve Jobs said in his famous Stanford uh, University address, uh, um, graduation address, uh, that you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect the dots looking backwards. And so much about purpose that I think, I don't people maybe maybe just aren't aware of, or maybe get get wrong might be harsh because it's not about right or wrong, but maybe they get trip trip up over is that if they don't know it yet, they have to do more 
Whereas we're often the, the starting point, the seeds are planted. If you look back and say, what are the things that have, what are the dots that I can connect over my, my life experiences? Whether it was things I valued or things that lit me up or things that uh, really upset me or things that um, inspired me. And um, so I think people, it can be a lot, there can be a lot of um, confusion, I suppose, on that. What, what is a myth that you think that people need to realize or accept is just a myth when it comes to finding your purpose or discovering your purpose? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I'll approach it. I'll approach it this way. I believe it's our unconscious mind that helps us find our purpose. I don't believe we can consciously engineer this solution. Right. So let me elaborate just a little bit. Please, you know, man. when I talk about engineering your environment, right, I talked about breaking life into these 12 life priorities. Right. And then you look at, okay, well, let's rank those priorities. What's important to you? So let's take the top eight. Let's score them and let's see where the gaps are. Right. Let's see where the gaps are in my friends, my partner, my spirituality, my entertainment, all these areas. And then once I know these gaps, okay, well, let's see how aligned I am in my vocation. So there's a process I go through. And then it's like, okay, how do I bridge these gaps? And again, all of this exercise, the more you're immersed into understanding your environment and the environment that's going to serve you, the more you're rewiring your brain. And I truly believe that something as important as finding our purpose is done unconsciously. You know, when we, when we intentionally wire our brain to be more aligned with who we are, we're absorbing so much information unconsciously that it's almost impossible to, to consciously um, pay attention to everything that could serve us going forward. That's why it's really important that we create the environment that's going to notice these things without even paying attention. You know, you're going to notice that billboard that you didn't notice before. You're going to hear this conversation that you didn't notice before. All these innocuous things happening around you. When you start to wire your brain to pay attention to that, that's when you're going to find those little nuggets that are going to kind of um, illuminate where that purpose will be. So I truly think it should be a conscious evolution. It should be an unconscious evolution. And that takes an intentional deep dive. So it's kind of, it's kind of the dichotomy um, between engineering kind of that brain you want to your brain unconsciously finding what it needs. I think that's so brilliant how you describe that, that you're, it's not a, it, there might be some conscious effort to create your environment, but when you, and when you create that environment, you become hyper aware or more intentional of a, a noticing mm -hmm. what shows up and that starts to impact the, the, the unconscious. So let's, let's go a little deeper on this. Cause I think this is an exciting area and I think you, you offer a unique perspective on that. So what might be some, and, and as much as possible, as we go into deep neuroscience about the subconscious, mm -hmm. let's be as practical as possible. So what would be some examples? What are some practical examples that someone could do to either create an environment or at least, I guess the, the goal here is to, um, to notice more, to create the attention on what they should be creating the attention on. Uh, where would you begin? Yeah. So again, it's all about self-awareness, right? So you know, I kind of look at the evolution of life into uh, there's two main kind of lines on the graph. And uh, I'll get to my point here. You want to become more self-aware, right? So through struggle, 
through intention and all this tension that I mentioned, you're, you're going to become more aware. And when you finally see the noise in your life for, for what it is, you'll consciously start to reduce that noise, right? So it's that gap between your awareness and the noise in your life that's going to be your power, right? That's where you're going to that's where you're going to find that insight. That's where you're really humming. So practically, what people need to do is they need to have those tougher conversations with themselves. They have to really understand at an intrinsic level, okay, ignoring what people think you should be. What is driving you, right? And again, I get back to that, to that environment. You know, what is that environment that you need to create? for you to thrive. And again, it's asking those deeper questions, right? Um, it's asking, you know, in 24 hours, what am I being exposed to? What am I exposing myself to? What conversations am I having? What am I reading? What am I watching, right? Um, what am I doing? Like just taking account and seeing it for what it is, is a great starting point because most of us, we drift through life without any clue of what we're creating. And I think it's just merely that intention that's a great place to start. And building on that, I agree. Too many people are walking walking aimlessly through their days and are ticked off when they wake up years later wondering where, where all the time went or perhaps even worse, resigning themselves to the life they're stuck with. Mm -hmm. So as people have some of these you know, uh, brutally honest conversations with themselves and take a really honest look in the mirror, and looping back to some of your core values, what, how, how would you guide someone to also bring, at that same time of being brutally honest, bringing some self-compassion or self-love or, or self-respect in a situation like that so they don't mm -hmm. go down a, in a real dark place if they have to really, really, really look in the mirror? Sure. Well, just for example, this year, two overarching goals, call them objectives for me, is zero judgment an impeccable word, which is very hard. Trust me, impeccable word is very hard. This isn't about being honest. Impeccable word is about brutal honesty in every way. Um, and zero judgment is extremely hard as well. You know, when I used to walk down the street, I would definitely make judgments on people that were walking by and I would often verbalize them to who I'm with. You know, now I catch myself, right? And you know, I have compassion for the situation they might be going through. And I think that's where it starts. I think when you start to focus on not judging others, when you start to lead with compassion and really, you know, kind of short circuit that typical brain process where you see something, emotions arise and you react to it. If you can catch that as soon as you sense something and breathe, and focus on what's coming into your mind and then not applying judgment at the end, that's going to really start the process that then when you look inwardly, you'll stop judging yourself. And really that's the key, right? Mm -hmm. Self-compassion is about saying, look, you know, I won the genetic lottery. I won the geographic lottery. I won the parental lottery. I won a lot of lotteries, Chris. And this is something that I had zero control over when I was born. And I, by no stretch of the imagination, think that I've manifested my life without a ton of a head start. So if any of us 
um, have the hubris to think that we're better than others or that we deserve something because of what we've created. We don't deserve anything, right? We're all a function of where we began and where we've arrived. And so when you have that perspective, you start to see everybody as just who they are. And then you start to have more self-compassion for yourself. Yeah. And it's a, it's a hard muscle for a lot of people to build, especially if they, if they, if they were shaped earlier on and maybe compassion wasn't part of their upbringing or part of their mm -hmm. lexicon. Um, and a great respect for you for setting those intentions or goals uh, of zero judgments and impeccable work. I can imagine that that is, that is challenging. So within that, if I just go a little bit deeper on that one, mm. how do you, how do you, um, what do you do when you catch yourself perhaps with some judgment or maybe not having impeccable word? Mm. What is your strategy for catching yourself with compassion or at least redirecting yourself from them? Mm. Well, I notice everything now. So that took a long time. I used to not notice these things. So I notice every time um, and I take note of it. So I journal a lot um, and I do one thing um, religiously. I do a, a weekly unskillful reflective journal. <laughs> that's, uh, what do you mean by that? It doesn't roll off the tongue very well. But every week I look back at the week and I think of an incident where I didn't act skillfully. Okay, so, you know, the Buddhists often refer to acting unskillfully as lying, jealousy, right? Envy. Um, so I look back at the week and I find an incident where I didn't act skillfully. So I got upset, right? I let my emotions get away from me. I was jealous of this situation. I look back and I map out, so in detail, what the incident was. Then I write down what the trigger was. Is it something that is recurring? Is it a one time? Then I look at the opportunity cost for me behaving that way. Okay. What was an outcome that I could have had that would have been better? Then I write, okay, what did I learn from this? And then I have a call to action. So there's five steps. I do it once a week and it's for the most profound, um, I guess you could say misstep of the week unskillful act of the week. And after 52 weeks, you're going to have these deep reflections on what I would consider um, the parts of myself that I would like to shift. And over time, they will shift. So uh, that's maybe a bit geeky, um, uh, maybe a little bit uh, OCD with that, but, um, but I find it helps. I think it's freaking brilliant. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I can see how breaking it down into those five steps slows your thinking down enough, opens up your reflective part of your mind and perhaps to the reflective part of your heart and really gets honest with yourself. So I'm, I'm curious, I kind of have, a, I have to ask the follow-up question. We are, we're a few months into the year at the time of this recording. What have you learned so far? If you kind of synthesize your learnings from those moments, just using you as a guinea pig, because I think sure. I think your 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 self-awareness, again, is inspiring. And I think there's some people who are listening to this who uh, want to be better at self-awareness and maybe want to be better at being even, I don't know if that's the right phrase, but being more vulnerable with themselves, to be honest with themselves, but look at it, not just stay in the pain point of what, I, what, what am I seeing, but take ownership over what am I learning? How can that make me better? So what are some of the lessons that you're learning from that process so far? Well, there's a few. 
Um, I'm definitely a flawed human being. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say that. Nobody's flawed. We're exactly what we are. Yes. But, um, you know, just taking a book from, uh, from the Stoics, right? Epictetus breaks down um, the, the dichotomy of, um, of control, right? What we can control, what we can control. And then there's a third which is what we can't completely control, but we have some influence. So for me, you know, what I can control, I do a great job of, you know, I, I do a great job of controlling my environment. But one thing that I still have a really hard time doing is the things I can control still bother me, right? So for example, you know, I had an issue with the bank. I had an issue with the phone. Um, I had a bunch of these in the last month. And I would get upset internally. I would feel the emotions arising and I still didn't have control over it. And it's extremely upsetting because those are the moments that I should be in greater control. So for one, I do still um, obsess over things I can't control and I don't do a good enough job um, of controlling my emotions. So, you know, good that I notice, um, an opportunity for me to better control my emotions. That's one. The other one that I'm learning is impeccable word. Um, I often rationalize while I don't overtly lie, I'll rationalize me potentially, um, you know, not being as open, um, uh, me not using um, as clear language as I should, right? Um, thinking that I know better for the person, right? We have to be really careful. When we do things that we think are in someone's best interest, it's a very slippery slope because I don't know their life. I don't know what's in their best interest. The only thing that we can be sure of is truth is always the best answer. And I don't always have an easy time with that. And I think it's arrogant of me to think that I know what's best for someone. So every time that I think I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm kind of helping somebody out by withholding, um, I don't think I'm doing them a service. Um, so that's another area that I could be way better at. You know, I could list 10 more, Chris. You know, <laughs> I'm, a, I, I'm a work in progress, brother. We all are. We all are. You're absolutely right. You are not flawed. You're human. <laughs> and your flaws make you perfect. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. and um uh, there's so much wisdom in what you've just shared there. And I appreciate you sharing openly and, and uh, being honest with us. Um, Cause I know that some, someone today needed to hear your example and um, can st perhaps step up their game in their own judgments or, or the, the word that they, they, they use towards themselves and others. Um, yeah. So much wisdom in that. Um, so what, uh, you know, taking all of this and kind of putting it into play for uh what you want to do going forward and, and, and working more with purpose going forward. Um, what are some of the projects and initiatives that are inspiring mm. you now and how are you growing, growing through those projects? Mm -hmm. You know, I consider myself, um, I honestly do right now. I consider myself so lucky because I, I am so passionate about what I'm doing right now. You can't build something for six years um, and put your life into it without any compensation and, and not be passionate about it. Trust me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, 
So, so when I look forward, um, there are really three big areas, um, and I'll be succinct. Um, one is my thought leadership. I, I truly enjoy it. I have to re reboot my blog, Find Your Superhuman. I've let distractions and short-term objectives kind of distract me from that. So the thought leadership is super important. Um, I typically read one to two books a week. So that growth um, is really important to me. So thought leadership, growth, define your superhuman blueprint, all of that, all of that, um, call it unscalable work, um, is very important to me. Um, and I'm really diving into, you know, the Roman Stoics, obviously, you know, um, living a life of, um, of virtual, uh, of virtual, living a life of virtue, um, you know, focusing on tranquility in life. That all interests me um, because I had such a, such a hurricane in my brain for most of my life. Um, so that's one big area. So there's going to be a lot, of, um, a lot of material coming out, um, be it the blog, be it the video blog, be it the blueprint, all these things. Um, we also have our products. We have organic products all under Ikuma, and we have a, a fantastic and exciting um, development coming up this year. We have two, two drinks formulated. Um, and again, I want to give um, our, our demographic, our psychographic, um, the tools they need to eliminate the noise. And these products, these beverages, um, are two examples of how we can do that. We're also going to be developing other products with um, very interesting and very uh, top-of-mind um, ingredients um, that I think is going to revolutionize the industry. And then we have our services side, which is our B2B mental health software. And that is trying to improve um, people's mental well-being, um, leveraging gamification and behavioral nudges um, to improve their mental health at work, which is often such a big focus for people. So, so I'm really, um, you know, those three buckets are very demanding right now. And, uh, and I'm really excited about it. Um, you know, I, I'm doing exactly what I want to do, Chris, exactly what I want to do. And it sounds like you're in that sweet spot of being, uh, experiencing tension, which puts you in tension, um, mm -hmm. which means like there's a, there's a, there's always upside to the struggle that you've got there. So uh, your perseverance is also inspiring. Uh, six years of, of putting in hard work and uh, I wish you all the best in, in making sure that pays off. Before I ask the, the final question, where can people learn more about you, your work, your company? How can they get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, people can email me. Um, our company name, somebody, uh, I spoke at an event recently and somebody, the first question, and it perturbed me, I won't lie to you. They go, why, why does your name have to be so complicated? <laughs> um, I had to bite my tongue internally. Um, but you can contact me at Gary at Ikuma.com. Now, Ikuma is spelled I-K-K-U-M-A. U-M uh, as in Mary A. So Gary at Ikuma.com. Um, you can also check out Ikuma.com. There's a speaking um, section there where you can, uh, you can see um, all my resources and how to contact me as well. Um, so quite easy. You can email me. Um, I get quite a few emails. I'm not sure how quickly I'll get to them, but I definitely will get to them. So that would be the easiest way to, uh, to reach me.
Great, great. And we'll include the links links to those, your website, and also your book sure. uh, in our show notes as well. So the final question I wanted to ask is reflecting on all we've discussed today and, and all the work that you've been doing, for people to truly step into their purpose and embrace their unique gifts, what's one truth that if they embrace that would make all the difference in the world for them? I think, I think the one truth, Chris, and I think the biggest obstacle. So again, I, I mentioned removing obstacles to get us to where we need to go. So I think the biggest obstacle in all our lives is allowing um, externalities and our ego to shape our decisions. So if there was one, one truth, I would say we are all exactly where we need to be at the moment. And by focusing more on who we are and intentionally creating the environment for us to thrive, we're going to get to where we need to go. So that would be, that would be my major truth. We're exactly where we need to be at the moment. Now the question is, okay, with what we've learned in life, where do we want to go next? And the only way we're going to shape our present decisions is by creating an environment so that in the future we'll make better ones. You know, we're already a function of what we've created. So it's too late now to think we're going to make different decisions. We got to create that environment to make better ones going forward. Love that. Love that. Thanks for, thanks Gary for showing, sharing that wisdom and thanks for all the work that you've done to help people find their purpose and live more intentionally. Uh, if you want to find out more from Gary, please check out the links in our show notes. And um, thanks for your time, Gary, today. I very much appreciate it. And I appreciate you. Thanks, Chris. I had a great time. Really appreciate it. That was Gary LeBlanc, CEO and life engineer. As a reminder, this show is only valuable if you apply what you learn, and most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and hear your report back on what you learned or found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com slash connect. That's theignitionshow.com slash connect. And let us know what struck you and what it was that you heard today that you really needed to hear today. You can leave us a message, a voice message or an audio message there, or you can join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there. We'd love to hear your comments and any follow-up questions you have. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That is a shorter follow-up episode where we, that's my wife and business partner Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, subscribe and rate the show or leave a review in iTunes. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We actually read every single review and comment that comes through iTunes, Facebook, and our website and respond to as many people as we can. And lastly, remember, whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.